Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go for high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are uh, now tuned into yet another episode, and this one is actually a great episode. We talk a little bit about Halix valgus, and to do that, we had Dr. Justin Tsai joining us and a little bit more about Dr. Sai. He did his uh, his residency at SUNY Health Science Center in Brooklyn, New York. He did a fellowship in foot and ankle surgery at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. And he is currently at the Rothman um, Institute of Orthopedics. And he did a great job. You know, we talked about Alex Valgus. We talked about all those different angles that you that you hear about the IMA. Um, we talked about the treatment options. We talked about non-operative, operative treatment options. And again, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, we do have a video that goes along with every single, at least almost every single episode that you can find on YouTube if you want to see, if you're more of a visual learner and you like seeing words and pictures while we talk, go and check those out. That link for the video is going to be in the description. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button as well so you get updated with things that we are doing and you get updated anytime we have a new episode. And then please, after this episode with Dr. Sai, please go and leave us a review. Uh, again, he did a great job talking about Alex Valgus. So without further ado, let's go ahead and, and hop into the episode for the day. The sponsor for today's episode is actually going to be Convey MD. Convey MD is a podcast platform designed specifically for medical education. And what makes Convey MD unique is one, they only offer medical podcasts for medical professionals. And there are 25 channels just for orthopedics, including Nailed It Ortho. Uh, number two, for some podcasts, listener can view images like x rays slides, show notes, and transcriptions while listening, and they can download content for future references. And number three, they offer CME or Continuing Med Medical Education podcasts from groups like the Orthopedic Trauma Association. And also here at Nailed It Ortho, we look forward to partnering with Convey MD on some future CME episodes as well. It is a free download in the App Store, and we've included a link in the show notes. So download it today and let us know what you think. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Sai, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am um, so happy that you, you know, you've, you've taken time out of your, your holidays to <laughs> come record this. So welcome to the podcast. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and we typically start off at the beginning with a couple of questions, just getting to know our guests before we jump into the topic of the day. And so, you know, this is a foot and ankle topic. I know you've, I've seen that you've done um, a couple of, uh, of talks on, on foot and ankle, especially for the Foot and Ankle Society. So what brought you towards the specialty of uh, foot and ankle? What made you want to go into it? Yeah, so I mean, foot and ankle for me, what stood out was uh, really uh, the kind of diversity uh, of the procedures out there. Uh, in, in my program, which was uh, SUNY Downstate, we, we get exposed to foot and ankle on the early side, which is which is great. Uh, and so, I, you know, I've had a, had a chance to do other rotations such as sports, trauma. And, um, you, you know, I, I like them. But really, when I did foot and ankle, I was really impressed by the different procedures that uh, I'd see on a typical basis. So 
you know, really a combination of aspects from all the different subspecialties, whether it's joint replacement, sports, uh, reconstructions. And I just kind of liked how, how each day was so diverse and, and it kind of kept things interesting for me. Um, and, and that combined with the fact that my uh, mentor um, uh, at my institution, uh, Dr. Jaime Uribe, uh, was um, simply put a, a great teacher and really kind of motivated me to, to pursuing this uh, great subspecialty. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I found, you know, through talking with uh, different people that the being able to, you know, do such a diverse, um, a broad range of, you know, injury, just like you were saying, from trauma to sports to reconstruction and to arthroplasty is a, is a lot of things that draw people towards foot and ankle. I really enjoyed my foot and ankle rotation, too. I, I, I liked it a lot. Um, and another question I have for you this is more of a different question is what is one of the books that you have gifted to others and so this can be a this can be an orthopedic book this can be a non-orthopedic book we've had a lot of different um, guests say things some guests have given us different poem books that they've recommended some have given us orthopedic books so uh, what is one of the books that you have gifted to others uh, that's a great question so actually um, it's interesting to bring that up because you know it being right around the holidays uh, more recently I've um, you know had a chance to uh, read a, or, or look through a book called uh, There and Back, Photographs from the Edge by uh, uh, someone named Jimmy Chen. He's a, a photographer. He's a climber. He's an athlete and uh, just has a bunch of great photos out there. Um, beautiful shots from his adventures and, and from around the world. So um, it's just, uh, uh, you know, I thought it made a great holiday gift. And that's something I've been able to give out, um, you know, this this holiday season. That's awesome. I will have to put that on my um, list of books to check out. I always take notes and write down what uh, one of our guests say and, and try to check out some of those books. So definitely try to check that out. And last question here is, do you have any interests outside of the field of orthopedics? We know we all love orthopedics so much. It's great. But do you have any other interests or things that you like to do outside of the field of orthopedics? You know, typically I, I like to stay active, you know, my, my big sports and, and by no means am I an expert uh, and, and great at it, but, you know, I love skiing and, and this time of year, I usually have a couple of ski trips kind of lined up, uh, try to stay sane by, you know, getting some kind of exercise in per day, uh, usually kind of running or, or lifting and just uh, spending time with my wife. And we have a two-year-old uh, uh, dog, actually, <laughs> that keeps us nice. active. Yeah, that's awesome. I um, I think I tried skiing for the first time this year, and going down the hill is is, is cool. And then you start to pick up speed, and then I realized I didn't really know how to stop. <laughs> so you don't have that, you know, same fearless nature as uh, you know when you start out. You know, when you're when you're four or five, when you're yeah. when you're older, and you have a lot more to lose with falling down. It becomes a little bit less fun to be kind of out of control. <laughs> Yeah, and you always hear about people tearing their ACLs and having peel-on fractures from skiing. So that's in the back that's of right. my mind. But, you know. <laughs> well, at least you know where to go, right? Exactly. Navigate right? that a little bit easier. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and, and get into the uh, into the topic of the day. We can switch gears and talk a little bit about Halix valgus. Some people refer to this as bunions. Yeah. Um, and so, so Dr. Sai, say, for example, you have a, a – 47 year old female who just comes into your office with foot pain she's been told that she has a history of family history of bunions she was told that she has a bunion and she should see a foot ankle orthopedic surgeon can you kind of take us through a little bit what are some of the uh, like risk factors for having a bunion what it, what it is and then we can kind of 
move forward and get into, you know, kind of the physiology of how this happens? Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's no surprise that you find bunions more in uh, in societies where people wear shoes. So uh, the environment certainly comes into play, uh, specifically constrictive shoe wear or what we call, you know, fashionable shoes or high heels. Uh, those definitely put someone at risk of uh, developing a bunion. Uh, and whether it's uh, because uh, female patients are, are usually more likely to wear those type of shoes uh, or just some separate factor we may not be sure of, it, female patients are more likely to develop bunions as well. Also, the concept of hypermobility. So if a patient uh, has uh, hypermobility in, in their other joints, uh, that makes them more likely to uh, present uh, or develop a bunion over time. Uh, and to certainly develop one earlier on in life. Yeah, is it is a constrictive shoe or just because it's just pressing up against the uh, metatarsal head? Is just just that is that the main reason? Or I, I never understood why it was constrictive shoe wear, but is is that just the main reason? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, when you're wearing something that kind of crowds the toe box and you're putting a lot of pressure, you know, you, you could break down some of that medial capsule. Uh, and subsequently, uh, uh, you know, have that metatarsal, first metatarsal uh, start to drift into to varus, which, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people have implicated as the kind of uh, primary factor into developing bunion. Uh, so I think it's that, that pressure coming from all sides that sort of destabilizes the normal stability present at the, the first MTP joint. Yeah, and that you just perfectly transitioned yourself into it. I was actually going to ask you kind of what's that, some of the pathophysiology behind this hallux valgus. Can you kind of walk us through? I know you're just saying, you know, the metatarsal starts going a little bit of varus, but can you tell us a little bit more about how this, you know, you know, kind of the, how this progresses? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I found this to be really cool, actually. You know, when I was learning this, I thought it was, uh, you know, learning about the, the pathophysiology here actually helped me kind of remember the anatomy uh, and to kind of keep it in mind as opposed to the other way around where, you know, you start with anatomy and go on to pathophysiology. So, yeah, I like to think about it as this whole process starting at, uh, with the medial capsule breaking down. Okay, so the, the medial capsule breaks down. Uh, what happens is that that first metatarsal starts drifting into varus, uh, or more specifically, the distal aspect of the uh, first metatarsal starts uh, deviating medially. Uh, and then the important thing to remember is kind of everything else stays in place. So the, the sesamoids stay in place, the, the tendons that cross the joint stay in place. Uh, and uh, that in turn uh, forces, and most of those actually attach onto the, the proximal phalanx. So what starts with a, you know, a medial deviation of the, the first metatarsal um, and leaving the other factors in place, it, it kind of uh, forces uh, or, or makes the deformity worsen over time. So the EHL will kind of uh, bowstring uh, the uh, proximal phalanx, uh, which in turn can can force the joint uh, more into valgus, uh, which in turn forces the EHL to become even tighter. Uh, subsequently, the proximal phalanx can uh, also uh, be uh, pulled on by the uh, adductor as well. Uh, and lastly, the sesamoids stay in place, uh, and uh, th those are uh, kind of a good marker for, for how bad a, a bunion deformity is. Okay, sesamoids staying in place. Yeah. And so just like you were saying, just to recap, it starts with the medial capsule, um, and then it, you know, the, the distal aspect starts to go medial, but everything else stays in place with bowstrings, um, 
which, you know, you have EHL and your flexors uh, bolstering lateral to the MTP and that kind of mm-hmm. extenuates this deformity. And, yeah. and so when you, when you get these patients in your clinic and, you know, they come, you know, you, they get a referral from your primary care, from their primary care physician, what are some of the things that you're asking them in the clinic? Like, what do, what do you go through when you speak to them? Yeah, so I think it's really important to kind of note where where they have pain and, and really kind of get at what they're presenting to you for. Now, a lot of them will, you know, be coming to you, practically speaking, for, for surgery, right? You're, you're referred, they've, they've been through everything before, they've been told they have bunion, and, uh, you know, if you have a kind of busy surgical practice, a lot of them are just come to you after failing that operative management. Uh, but what you're looking for primarily is is someone that's uh, you know has, has pain over the medial eminence. All right, so pain on the inside part or, or medial aspect of the, the first MTP joint. Uh, they'll say that they're they're kind of tender right over that area. Uh, they'll describe um, you know difficulty with uh, a shoe wear, and, and they said they they're kind of fed up trying to find uh, you know wider and wider shoes, and then uh, you know associated lesser toe deformities. So uh, the concept of transfer metacalcialgia later on, uh, you know, with more severe hallux valgus or developing lesser toe deformities, uh, especially the second, uh, such as uh, a hammer toe uh, or, or in really bad cases, a, uh, a, a crossover toe. Okay. And, and do you find that, you know, that a lot of patients will say like, oh yeah, my, my sister has it and my aunt and, you know, we all, we've all had bunions and, you know, you find like there's a family, people always talk about some type of a family history or do you not really, you haven't seen that as, as much? No, no, it happens all the time. I mean, uh, usually I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, they'll, they'll mention either their mother or their grandmother. They'll say, uh, you know, they, they watched the, their, their grandmother develop these, these, or, or how, how bad her bunions were. And, a lot of right. times they'll say, I, you know, I don't want mine to reach that, 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 um, you know, severity. So, um, that, that's one reason that they're usually at that point, at least, uh, willing to discuss treating it now. And, and the questions kind of revolve around that. Okay. And so what are some of the things that you look for on a uh, physical exam? I know me as a, a, a very novice, um, intern would look and I'd see, you know, it looks like a bunion. Well, I'll say, okay, well, I mean, it's a bunion. I mean, I don't, what else do you want, me to, what else do you want right. me to tell you? You know, so what do you look for? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the first thing, and this could be pretty, pretty straightforward, right? You want to quantify and, and, and we'll go into kind of how we could do so objectively and, and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, w- with angles, but you can tell, I think most people can tell, uh, even the lay person looking at a bunion, how bad is it, right? How big is that bump on the inside? How badly is that, that toe, uh, turning in? And as with anything with foot and ankle, you want to make sure you do this standing up. You know, I've seen bunions look really bad, or, uh, I should say the other way around, look not that bad sitting down or non-weight bearing. And when they start to put weight on it, you'll, you'll find that toe kind of drift over a lot more. So, uh, you know, certainly a standing exam is very, very important. You want to look at the lesser toes as well, right? So as that bunion starts to get worse over time, it's going to cause that, uh, you know, the second toe and, and, and sometimes even the third toe to, to drift upwards. And in the case of the second toe, start to cross over, uh, which can actually be for, for some patients, the, the main presenting kind of symptom. They, may not be as bothered by the, the bad bunion that they have, but they do notice that that second toe is kind of sticking up and interfering with, uh, sh- you know, shoe wear because the top of the toe rubs on the, the top or the bottom part of their, uh, 
the, the top of the shoe. Uh, and uh, you want to look at the degree of pronation of the helix. So it's not a straight uh, two-dimensional uh, deformity. So what, what starts to happen as that helix kind of gets worse is it starts to pronate. And so you'll notice uh, the, um, the, the helix basically uh, kind of internally rotating and they'll develop a, a callus kind of on the medial aspect of their uh, helix IP joint. So that combined with uh, you know other deformities more proximal such as a, a flat foot um, or, or perhaps a, a valgus deformity at the, uh, the, the ankle joint uh, can, can be uh, um, or should be taken into account. Okay. So, you know, just to reiterate, some of the important things you want to look for is you kind of just want to like quantify it. And, you, you know, we talk, well, we'll talk about the, some of the angles in a bit, but you want to look, you want to see the, uh, the pronation. Uh, if there is any pronation, look at the other toes, see if there's any crossover between the, the hallux and maybe the second, um, the second toe, see if there's any other deformities going on. Um, look at the forefoot. You do this sitting and you also do this standing up. Now, yeah. when, I, when I read, I also I always hear about like, I always hear about excessive TMT or tarsal metatarsal motion. How mm -hmm. do you, how do you assess that? Yeah, I found this to be kind of very difficult. And, and the truth is, uh, it, it's not that difficult, but the, the difficulty in it is just knowing what's excessive motion and what's not. And this just comes with experience. Uh, and so, you know, the best way to do it is, you know, you have them kind of sitting down uh, and, you know, with one hand, um, you're kind of grasping the four uh, metatarsal heads, uh, uh, the lesser metatarsal heads. And with the other hand, uh, what you're doing, you're, you're gripping kind of the dorsal and plantar aspect of the first MTP joint. And you just kind of do a little shuck test. You, you kind of raise it up and down. And, you know, one, you can compare it to the opposite side, but people that are hypermobile are usually hypermobile bilaterally. Uh, so you kind of get a sense for what feels hypermobile and what doesn't uh, based on, you know, doing, doing a bunch of these exams and, and just getting a sense of what feels looser uh, versus what feels more kind of normal. And so that, that comes with time. Why does this matter when we're talking about, uh, you know, hallux valgus, that they have excessive motion in that first tarsal metatarsal joint? Hypermobility is classically uh, an indication, uh, you know, in setting a bunion to do a specific type of a, a bunion procedure called a, a, a lapidus, which is a, a fusion of the first TMT joint. Uh, the thinking is that if you're hypermobile there, that's your that's your driving force. You're hypermobile not only in the dorsal plantar uh, plane, but also in the medial and lateral plane as well. So mm -hmm. if you just do a, a distal osteotomy or a proximal osteotomy, you're not really treating what's the primary driving factor. And you may make the bunion look better, uh, but they're at high risk for recurrence because of the instability present at the uh, TMT joint. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Makes sense. So assess their motion, you know, get them standing up and, um, you know, do a you know, complete neurophysical exam or neurovascular exam. Um, so what, what imaging do you get, you know, when they come to your clinic, you know, what x-rays are you getting? If you're getting x-rays or, you, you know, are you just looking at it clinically? And then once we go about kind of what x-rays you get, then we can talk about the different things that you look for in those x-rays. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, always get x-rays. And, and again, I, you know, I stress the importance uh, of weight-bearing x-rays. So I'll always get a, a, a three views, uh, the AP view, uh, the lateral view, and, and an oblique view can be uh, helpful as well. 
And this is what really allows you to quantify your degree of hallux valgus, but it also allows you to kind of rule out other, um, uh, you know, factors uh, that might drive what your decision-making will be. So, you know, one example would be, you know, the patient has significant, you know, arthritis either at the first MTP joint or, or further back at, at the midfoot, uh, tarsal metatarsal joints. Uh, those would certainly drive what procedure you ultimately uh, may end up doing on the patient. And then, of course, you're looking at uh, other things like lesser toe deformities, metatarsis ductus, and then, uh, you know, certainly the patient has a flat foot, it should be noted as well. Right. And so, so what are, you know, we're looking at an AP of the foot, you know, we got those, those weight bearing films and what do we look for? How do we assess this? And when we're trying to look through the eyes of, is this hallux valgus? And then we're trying to see how bad it is or how severe. Yeah. Yep. So I, I start with, you know, when I look at these images, I, I, I just go first to the first MTP joint. Okay. And the first thing I'll notice, is this actually a bunion? A lot of times patients will present, they'll say, you know, I have a bunion and they'll point to a, a large bump on the top of their the first MTP joint. And that ends up being, you know, hallux rigidus with a dorsalosity of fight. Uh, to a lot of patients, a bump is the same thing. So I'll, I'll drift right there first and just see, do I have a incongruent joint where, um, you know, the uh, first MTP joint, you know, is, or the first metatarsal head is uncovered. Uh, and then after that, if they do indeed have hallux valgus, I'll go ahead and I'll uh, start to quantify it, okay? And, and the main angles that we usually look at, or at least I look at, I start with the intermetatarsal angle, which really quantifies how deviated the first uh, metatarsal uh, is from the second. For me, this is the easiest one to kind of uh, illustrate to the patient why they're having pain. I tell them, look, that bump on the inside is not because you're growing some more bone there, but it's because basically the first metatarsal is deviating from the second. It's forming a V when it should be parallel. And we quantify how bad it is by how wide the V is or how uh, high the intermetatarsal angle is. Okay. So that is the intermetatarsal angle. And so that angle, again, you just kind of get an, uh, a line down the um, canals of the first and second metatarsal. And that is that angle. Do you look at any any of the other angles or can you kind of describe and you know they always we always hear they talk about a hva or the hallux valgus angle do you ever look at that yeah yeah i mean i i i can't say it's one i measure specifically but okay. you know that that's one that's going to get higher uh as the the bunion gets worse right so that's the angle uh you know use the same line down the axis of the the first longitudinal axis of the first uh, metatarsal and then you draw a second line down the long axis of the proximal phalanx uh, and, and the angle that uh, is um, between those two represents the hallux valgus angle. I think that uh, kind of measures how uncovered your first, usually how uncovered your first uh, metatarsal phalangeal joint is. Okay. And then I've like, you know, I've always read now more about like the DMMA angle. What, like, what is this? And, you know, should we be paying attention to this or like, what is the importance of, of that angle? And, and what is it? What yeah. Does stand for? Yeah. The distal metatarsal metaxial angle, I think, but okay. basically it's a measure of uh, how laterally deviated the, uh, the joint surface is of the first metatarsal head. So this is very controversial. I think, uh, you know, I think this is a big kind of measurement that was 
brought up a lot. And certainly I think it's tested and, and it should be well noted. Um, but uh, it allows us to quantify how laterally deviated the, uh, the articular surface is relative to the long axis of the first metatarsal. Uh, and, and the reason this comes into play is with, with patients with a really a uh, high DMMA, where the, the joint surface is really kind of pointing laterally, a patient may demonstrate hallux valgus uh, on clinical exam, but their joint will actually be congruent, meaning that, uh, you know, if you kind of draw a line between the medial and lateral aspects of your joint uh, for both the metatarsal uh, head as well as the proximal phalanx, they'll, they'll be parallel in patients that have a high DMMA. And, th and that's going to come into play later. You know, if the patient really has this, uh, if you do just one osteotomy, you can actually take a congruent joint and make it an incongruent joint. So yeah. it's just worth noting, uh, you know, if the patient really has a high DMMA, uh, uh, you know, and this will usually be pretty obvious because they'll have, a, again, they'll have a large bunion clinically, uh, but their joint will just look curiously like it, it's not uncovered. Uh, it just looks, uh, you know, congruent. Ah, okay. Okay. That makes sense now. And so, you know, we've, we've had this patient, you know, we've, we've gotten them and, and we've gotten x-rays and, you know, now we're back in the room with them. Uh, which, what patients are you undergoing non-operative treatment uh, with? And then what is your non-operative management? Like, how do you, how do you, like, what would you do to your patients? Yeah. So it depends on their complaints. So if they're, if they are bothered primarily by the uh, the bunion, the, the medial eminence. Uh, well, one, I tell them, you know, they, they if they have pain, um, sometimes they, you know, they don't like the way it looks, and I, but they don't have pain, and I just sort of kind of reassure them and tell them, uh, you know, if they don't have pain, there's, you know, not much, that, you know, they need to do other than maybe avoiding wearing tighter shoes to prevent from getting worse, uh, which is something I actually tell all patients, uh, even once after surgery. Uh, but if they have pain at, at the medial eminence, uh, you know, at the bunion, I tell them, look, there's, there's two solutions for this. You know, you can either wear a wider shoe, which is essentially the non-operative treatment uh, for a symptomatic bunion, uh, or you kind of narrow the foot and, and narrowing the foot with surgery. If they have uh, kind of lesser toe deformities, such as uh, transfer metatarsalgia uh, or hammer toes, then you can employ things like, a, you know, a metatarsal pad, which offloads metatarsal heads. You can, um, you know, utilize something called a, a, a boot and splint, uh, which uh, can help with, you know, crossover or clawing of the second toe. Uh, toe spacers can certainly, you know, they're not changing the degree of varus present at the first metatarsal, but if the patient has issues with the, you know, the hallux impinging on the second toe, a toe spacer can, you know, help prevent that uh, uh, so that the, the two toes aren't kind of rubbing against each other. Yeah. And, and when we mention or when we say transfer metatarsalgia, that's we're pretty much just saying just uh, the pain that is now along the other toes of the foot and not just the hallux, correct? Yeah. And actually, it's it's mostly at the level of metatarsal head. So, you know, um, going back to the deformities, what, what happens is, you know, as the uh, as the uh, first metatarsal drifts at the more more varus, the, the abductor, again, stays in place and it kind of um, lifts it up. And so you're, you're not engaging the windless mechanism as well. And, and subsequently you're not bearing as much weight as one normally would with the, the first metatarsal head, which could be anywhere between 50 and 70%. And so that's get transferred over to the second, 
And when uh, the lesser toes or lesser metatarsophalangeal joints get overloaded, uh, they, they got become destabilized and start to get a kind of a cock up or clawing, uh, which is why you, you so often see with bad bunions, that second toe, uh, demonstrating a transverse plane deformity, you know, usually drifting in the varus and that's why you get the crossover toe. Uh-huh. So again, it's the, it's the, um, the kind of lifting up, uh, of the first metatarsal, uh, and the shift of the weight to the second MTP joint. Uh, that uh, leads to this phenomenon, such uh, known as uh, transfer metatarsalgia. Okay. Okay. Cool. I appreciate you for <laughs> for explaining that. Yep. Um, yep. So, those are the patients that you're you're not operating on. So, yep. what patients? I know there there's you know I guess there's um, different degrees of hallux valgus, but can we kind of go through? Um, the operative treatment of hallux valgus, and I guess we can break it down into like mild, moderate, and severe, and then kind of what what um, falls into that category. Sure. So you know, again, by the textbooks, a mild deformity, and again, I'm just going to refer to the uh, the intermetatarsal angle because that's the main okay. one I, I use to kind of judge. Uh, but typically, a mild hallux valgus will will kind of be uh, with an intermetatarsal angle of of less than 13 degrees, and Again, I judge these both radiographically uh, as well as uh, clinically. So, you know, in these cases, uh, they'll, they'll be symptomatic uh, over the medial eminence, uh, but, you know, the, the toe itself won't, won't look terrible. And so in, in these cases, uh, you can often get away with a, uh, a distal osteotomy. There's, uh, you know, a, a lot of different osteotomies kind of derived, uh, um, described uh, as distal osteotomies, but I think the, the most uh, common one is, is called the chevron osteotomy based on the shape of the osteotomy uh, that's made. Uh, the reason it's so popular is because it works. Uh, it's a very stable osteotomy because of its shape. Uh, and it actually allows you to, to get quite decent correction uh, and allow you to also, with certain modifications, uh, address uh, um, kind of biplanar deformities, uh, for example, in the case of a uh, increased DMMA with a congruent joint, you can kind of add in a, uh, a closing wedge osteotomy um, in order to uh, uh, correct for that increased DMMA. Okay. So, so distal osteotomy for very mild hallux valgus, and then the chevron osteotomy, can you describe, it's, it's kind of just like a like you're cutting a V, I guess you could say, and just shifting it laterally. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So the the apex of the V is uh, is distal, and then you bring the limbs uh, proximally, uh, um, one uh, in the dorsal direction and one in in the plantar direction. Mm-hmm. Usually, uh, in order to maintain some stability, the angle between the two is you know anywhere between you know forty five and sixty degrees. Uh, for the most part, you want to try avoiding, you know, making one limb more uh, vertical uh, because that can lead to more instability, right? The more acute the right. angle, the more stable it is. And, uh, you know, one technique tip is obviously you want to make sure that the plantar limb exits out proximal to the sesamoids. You do not want to be kind of cutting into the metatarsal sesamoid uh, articulation because that can lead to you know, arthritis and, and pain plantarily. 
Okay. So we'll do that that dyslosteotomy. And then with the X, since we're shifting the metatarsal head laterally, at least from what I've seen, you'll shift it laterally and you may, you know, hold it in place with a screw or whatever fixation, you know, construct that you that you use. And then do you just shave off the extra bone since you shifted it laterally? Now there's a little piece of bone immediately. Do you just use a saw and shave that off? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll usually use uh, one and typically you can, you know, depending on the, the patient um, and the quality of bone, I typically use uh, one, uh, you know, three, five uh, millimeter screw. Uh, you know, you can throw that screw depending on how long you make each limb. You could throw it from proximal dorsal to uh, distal plantar or from proximal, uh, or sorry, distal dorsal to, to proximal plantar. Uh, and then after I typically what I do is I get the shift, I'll, uh, you know, hold it uh, in place while, it, you know, my assistant drives in the K wire or other way around, uh, usually. Uh, and then after the screws in and I find it to be stable, I will trim off that that edge. You just got to make sure that, uh, you know, especially if your screw is kind of close to that edge over there, you don't shave off too much because that could destabilize your osteotomy. Uh, and then, uh, if it gets, becomes destabilized at that point, there's less of a ledge to kind of stabilize you. So you just got to be careful during that step, but yes, I'll, I'll, um, I'll start by shaving off the medial eminence. Then I'll do the chevron. I'll shift it over and then I'll shave that, uh, leading edge after you shifted it over. Okay. And I always read about the, the Aiken osteotomy. Is there, can you, well, I guess number one, can you describe, what the Aiken is or the Aiken osteotomy is and, and when you'd use it. And then the second part of that is, do you ever use it in cases where there's mild hallux valgus? Yeah. So the Aiken osteotomy is a, um, basically a closing wedge osteotomy of the proximal phalanx. So this is, uh, uh, basically referred to as kind of a, a cheater procedure, right? So classically it's used for hallux valgus interphalangia. So, uh, this is a separate from a bunion. It's basically uh, uh, increased deviation of the distal phalanx of the hallux relative to the proximal phalanx. Okay, so, uh, you know, sometimes patients will have that in isolation and then you'll do an isolated Aiken. Uh, but uh, how I use it in the bunion is, you know, sometimes you do your correction, you do your chevron or your more proximal procedure and the, the toe is still kind of pointing in. And Aiken can often be very powerful in that case just to kind of straighten out the toe uh, and allow you to have kind of a more uh, visible, um, visibly satisfying correction. And usually okay. this is stabilized with either uh, a staple or a, uh, you know, usually a smaller uh, 2.5 screw uh, after you kind of uh, perform this closing wedge osteotomy. Okay, cool. So just to recap for, uh, for those listening for mild hallux valgus, you know, I may have less than 13 osteotomy that you can typically do to get a good amount of corrections. You can typically just do a distal osteotomy. You can do the Chevron osteotomy, which if you think of it in your mind, it's like a V shaped osteotomy with the V is actually distal. And then the, the limbs come proximally uh, aiming dorsally and plantarly and you shift it laterally, you hold it in place with whatever fixation that you do. And you can use a you know a saw to trim off the excess bone, and then you were also mentioned the Aiken osteotomy, which, which can be used in cases where there is hallux valgus interphalangeus, which is not the metatarsal, but actually the phalanx. And so that is mild hallux valgus. Now, what a, I guess what do you consider moderate hallux valgus, and then what would be your treatment for that? 
Yeah, so moderate is basically, you know, your your intermediate line is going to get a little bit larger. All right. So typically, you know, I think the book quoted as, you know, anywhere between 13 and 16 degrees. These bunions look worse, uh, again, both clinically and obviously radiographically as well. Uh, one thing I, I think I kind of didn't really gloss over uh, or I kind of didn't really mention uh, before was, you know, because the sesamoids stay in place, one marker of how bad a, a bunion is radiographically is how uncovered the sesamoids are. So as that first metatarsal drifts over, that fibular sesamoid, uh, which normally sits uh, kind of right underneath the uh, lateral aspect of the first metatarsal head, well, you start to see it appear in the web space. So usually in the more moderate cases, you're starting to see more uncoverage of the fibular sesamoid. You start to see it kind of at this, um, you know, radiopaque structure in the web space. And this is often sometimes when patients see it, they'll, they'll be like, what's that? So that's another marker of a more moderate uh, uh, bunion, uh, one that has uh, increased IMA between 13 and 16 degrees and also increase uncoverage of the uh, fibular sesamoid. Okay. Okay, cool. No, I appreciate you for uh, explaining that part of it as well. So that's, you know, definitely know about the sesamoids. Okay. And, and then so, so the osteotomy that you would do for the moderate Halix valgus, you know, IMA between 13 and 16, what would you, uh, what would you do for that? So there are literally probably tens or, or maybe, you know, a ton of <laughs> osteotomies. And, and uh, you know, as with everything, if there's a lot of answers uh, for, for one particular thing, uh, it kind of means that they're either all right or there's uh, no one perfect answer. So, okay. you, you know, you may hear the terms scarf osteotomy, mal-osteotomy, crescenteric, Ludloff. These all describe osteotomies that... Uh, you know, take place further back uh, in the metatarsal and not just distally. Uh, and they all have their advantages and disadvantages, uh, but the principle is the same. You know, what you're doing is you're, you're cutting uh, the bone. One of them is the distal fragment or what we call the capital fragment. And one is uh, the more proximal one. Uh, whatever cut you do, you're going to be shifting that more distal fragment or the capital fragment. Uh, more uh, uh, laterally. And in the proximal osteotomies, you're, you're pretty much not only translating, but you're rotating as well. Uh, and then you're stabilizing it. And, and that's the purpose of any uh, proximal uh, osteotomy, to realign the first metatarsal to be as parallel as possible to the second metatarsal. So, so we spoke earlier about the, you know, about possibly having some pronation of the uh, of the hallux that you may see with hallux valgus. So when we're doing the proximal osteotomy and we're talking about rotating it, are you were we trying to supinate it back to I guess neutral? Is that is that the rotation moment that we're looking for? And then for the distal fragment, we're bringing it a little lateral because it's you know it's deviated immediately because it's in varus. Exactly, exactly. The so-called kind of triplanar deformity, which is, uh, you know, that the buzzword nowadays, but really something you have to keep in mind. So the, you know, the distal osteotomies, you know, like the chevron, the translational ones, you don't really have an ability to correct rotation. And usually you don't have to. The more, um, you know, mild cases, there's not as much of a pronation deformity. Once they get more severe, 
you, you have to account for that. So, uh, you know, a lot of these osteotomies allow you to kind of rotate at the same time as uh, uh, correcting the uh, varus deformity. And that's something you can judge uh, by looking uh, at your x-ray. You know, you'll, you'll notice that if you just do it in one plane, the sesamoids might not perfectly line up or, 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 or get recovered. And usually you have to add in a rotational component in order to get a full correction. Well, I guess, I guess the rotation would also give you some planar flexion. So the one, one of the, one of the planes is going to be the lateral. Um, there's going to be a distal fragment going lateral. And then I guess the other two planes would be the would be more plantar flexion or the distal fragment and I'm trying to think what the other plane would be. I guess, I guess it's all rotation. Rotational. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And we mentioned a little bit earlier, and, and I know you were saying it's controversial about the the, the DMMA angle that um, distal, I guess, metatarsal metaphyseal angle which you kind of looking to see if the joint is congruent or not does that i guess what role is that supposed to play in this sense if you have a more somewhat severe um hallux valgus where your ima is between 13 and 16 yeah again it's just the uh, you know uh the dmma is something that's going to put you at a, a higher risk for recurrence if you don't uh get the joint congruent so again with a higher dmma They'll have a bunion, but their joint will look congruent. And if you just do a single osteotomy, uh, what happens is you'll you'll correct the metatarsal position, but actually you'll take a congruent joint uh, and make it uh, um, incongruent. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after that, uh, if left unrecognized, that can lead to a higher recurrence. And so, you know, at least for the purposes of just a, a test question, I think if you see uh, uh, or it's mentioned that there's a, a higher uh, DMMA, uh, then the answer is always going to be a, a double osteotomy or biplanar osteotomy. You're going to cut it in two different planes or, or take out a small wedge medially in order to take a, um, a, a patient with a high DMMA and uh, finish with a congruent uh, corrected helix valgus. Ah, okay. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense. And then I guess more for, and then you, you mentioned the Ma and Ludolf variations and there being a multiple, multiple um, different proximal osteotomies uh, that, you, that you can do, but you kind of mentioned the overall um, thought process of how to maneuver everything, but how, what is, does anything change for your severe um, hallux valgus and what do you consider a severe, you know, bunion to be? Yeah, so a severe one will typically be, uh, you know, something with a very high intermetatarsal angle. So something, uh, you know, generally around the 16 and greater uh, category. Uh, also, ones um, uh, that are typically more severe are ones that demonstrate instability present at the, the TMT joint. And then how this manifests, at least radiographically, is, you know, with weight bearing, they'll demonstrate plantar gapping. So you'll look at the, the first TMT joint. Uh, and it'll be gapped plantarly. This is like a pathognomonic sign for, for TMT joint instability. And basically in patients that have this, uh, along with a, uh, you know, really high intermetatarsal angle, uh, for me, the workhorse is, is going to be the lapidus procedure uh, or, um, or a fusion uh, uh, of the first TMT joint. Okay. And so, 
does it matter? So if you have a patient that has like, um, you know, this TMT instability that you note, but they're, you know, they're say their IMA is like 12. Do you mm-hmm. still, do you still do a lapidus or do you, and in the lapidus is that you can, what you just mentioned is fusing the first TMT joint. Do you still do a lapidus or do you just do the, the distal osteotomy and get your correction there? Like, what do you, like, if the, if the, if the deformity is not as bad, but they have this instability, what do you do? Yeah, I'll, I'll still do the lapidus. I mean, I'll, I'll explain to the patient that, again, once they demonstrate either clinically or radiographically that there's instability there, you know, I tell them even though the, the it doesn't look so bad right now, you know, the x-rays and, and this may seem kind of extreme to do a fusion, uh, it's actually the right procedure to do. Because, again, these patients, especially if they're on the younger side, they will recur, you know, if there's any instability present at the first DMT joint. So, for me, clinical or radiographic uh, uh, instability at the first TMT joint, uh, it, you know, these patients uh, will, will get a lapidus. Okay. Okay. And then you mentioned um, a little bit earlier that the higher MMA, IMAs, this is one where you have to do something proximally and distally in order to get your that full correction. Um, does your uh, Does your plan change if there is any arthritis present in the first MTP joint? Yeah, I mean, um, this, uh, yes. So if there's arthritis and significant arthritis, uh, then obviously, um, you know, the, cha- the correcting a bunion is not going to address that. Okay. And then I think it's important to note where their pain is. Uh, and so if the patient is pain at the first MTP joint, uh, then uh, along with associated arthritis, and sometimes these patients will also have a, a bunion as well. Um, so that's why it's important to note where their pain is coming from. Uh, but in case of the patients that have all three, the correct answer is to, to do a, a fusion at the first MTP joint or metatarsal phalangeal joint, which uh, is highly effective at obviously getting rid of the arthritis uh, and reducing their pain, but also allows you to kind of correct uh, the deformity and, and get rid of the painful medial eminence as well. Well, um, well, Dr. Sai, I think this is this has been great. It's been super helpful for me, you know, to uh, to to learn this a little bit more. And I, I think the same with a, a lot of the listeners who will be listening to this. Is there anything else or any high points that you uh, want the listeners, uh, you know, of this podcast or this episode to know about Halix Valgus? Um, is anything in at all? <laughs> No, I mean, I think we, uh, we, we covered everything. I mean, I, you know, I always, again, I found how it's found to be a very enjoyable kind of topic to learn about because everything just kind of made sense biomechanically and, and sort of once you understand the, uh, the path uh, pathoanatomy of, uh, Halix valgus, uh, the surgery is just all, all sort of makes sense and you kind of get uh, why they work and, and sometimes why they don't work. So I, I think we, we did a good job of covering everything, uh, you know, involving Alex Valgus. Well, that's awesome. And, and at the end of our episodes, we always give away for our guests. Uh, if you have social media and you want and you want the uh, listeners to follow you or anything like that, um, feel free to mention it. And, and you know, if they if you want to give any way to contact you, if not, that's completely fine. Uh, but we always open the floor to you to, you know, let it be known if you have anything that you uh, want them to follow you on. Yeah, no, I don't, uh, haven't gotten into the social media yet, but if anyone ever has any <laughs> clinical questions or, uh, you know, questions about practice, they can reach out to me at my first name, by my last name at rothmanortho.com. 
Well, Dr. Sai, again, I appreciate you uh, so much for taking your time to come out on this podcast. And, uh, you know, we hope that those that are listening, please go and uh, leave a rating and, and, and leave a review and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode and hit the subscribe button. And uh, we will see you again next week for another episode. And again, thank you all for listening to this episode featuring Dr. Sai on Halix Valgus. I hope you all enjoyed it a lot. You know, I hope you guys learned some stuff. Don't forget to please hit the subscribe button and please go and leave us a rating and a review in iTunes, Stitcher, however you listen to us. And also, please do not forget about today's sponsor for our episode, Convey MD, the medical education podcast. You can go there and click and find our show notes to this show, actually. <laughs> so until next time.